Today we are going to be looking at Psalm 24. Yes, we're actually going backwards. <laughs> we, 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 you thought I was going in one direction only, um, up and up towards the end of the Psalter, but we are going to go back to Psalm 24, and this is a, a beautiful, wonderful, poetic psalm. Well, all the psalms are poetry, you know that, right? Hebrew poetry. And they are songs of praise and worship. But Psalm 24 <clears throat> says a psalm of David. The earth is the Lord's in all its fullness, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? Or who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to an idol, nor sworn deceitfully, he shall receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is Jacob, the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, Salah. Lift up your heads, O you gates, and be lifted up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O you gates, and lift them up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Selah. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. It is living and powerful. It is active. Lord, may it penetrate our minds and hearts. May it change our lives today. And may Jesus Christ be exalted as we go into this portion of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Life is full of questions. Uh, some are trivial and some are quite important. <clears throat> People have questions about their health, about their family, uh, their financial situation, uh, their future. These are things that we wonder about. But the question most people ask today is simply this, how can I be happy? But the most important questions, the ultimate questions of life, have to do about God and our relationship to Him, about spiritual and eternal things. Are you asking the right questions about your own life this morning? In this psalm, there are three important questions. Two are stated, one is implied, that all people need to think about. These are ultimate questions about reality about eternity about life and the first question is implied in verse one and and that would be to whom does the earth belong and the answer is the earth is the lord's and all its fullness <clears throat> the world and all those who dwell therein to whom does the earth belong when we answer that question we find uh, the one who has the title deed to the planet. Um, if you own property, uh, you uh, have a deed to that property. There's a deed 
and it has your name on it. Well, the deed to planet Earth has the name of the Most High God. He has ownership of the Earth, including all that is within it. It all belongs to him. Uh, the Earth does not belong to man. It was given to man to inhabit, to cultivate, to exercise dominion, and to have stewardship over. But it, but God still owns it. It's still his. It still belongs to him. And in Psalm 50, uh, it, God says, Every beast of the forest is mine, and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the mountains and the wild beasts of the field are mine. So all of the wildlife, all uh, of the plant life, indeed all human life, belongs to God. The world and those who dwell therein. That's speaking of you and me, of human beings. All people belong to God, whether they acknowledge that fact or not. And verse 2 gives us the reason why God claims ownership of the earth and all people because he founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters and go back to genesis 1 and the spirit of god hovered over the waters and uh on day two i believe it is he separated the land the dry land from the waters god is creator and he also upholds everything that he made Romans chapter 9, the Apostle Paul asks a question. Does not the potter have power over the clay in the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? Yes, God's the potter. He, he creates and he shapes and he molds and sometimes he destroys if he wills. He, he has the right to do with your life and my life, the life of any person, anywhere, for whatever purpose he chooses. And he does all things according to the counsel of his own will. And he's not subject to anyone's will, uh, but his own. And since he rules over all people and they belong to him, it follows that they ought to worship, serve, honor, and glorify him, doesn't it? Uh, Moses used this same argument <clears throat> When he appealed to the Hebrew people in Deuteronomy 10, he said, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? Uh, but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and to keep the commandments of the Lord. Indeed, heaven and the highest heavens belong to the Lord your God, also the earth with all that is in it. So, so Moses said, this is how you ought to live because uh, God is the owner and ruler of all things. Uh, Israel, as well as all others, should fear, worship, serve, love, and obey God. It's God this is God's world. It's, and, and you and I are his special creation. We've been made in his very image. Uh, and, and so he deserves our praise and, and submission. We belong to him. Psalm 100, verse 3, Know that the Lord, he is God, and he, it is he who has made us, not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. 
So if God made you, then you, you belong to him. It's, it's as simple as that. Your body belongs to God, for example. Uh, your, your mind, your lips, uh, your ears, your feet, your hands. Everything about you belongs to God. Also, everything that you uh, own, your time, your talent, your treasure, really are not your own. They belong to God. And again, this is true of, of everyone, no matter uh, their religion, their nation, their place, their race, because God is the creator of all people. And so God has a strong claim on the human race, but he has an even stronger claim on those who have been born again, those who believe in Jesus Christ. Uh, what about you and me as Christians? We know, uh, Paul says, you are not your own. You've been bought with a price. Uh, therefore, glorify God with your body. So we have an even uh, a greater obligation uh, to serve the Lord and to acknowledge him as uh, the one who owns us. And so we owe him praise. We owe him reverence. We owe him worship and to homage, fear, fealty honor, submission, obedience. We owe him everything because he owns everything and because he gave his life for us. Uh, uh, even we owe him our very souls because he owns them. All souls are mine, says the Lord. So that's the first question and answer. Who, to whom does the earth belong? The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Second question. Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Another important question for all mankind to consider. The hill of the Lord represents the dwelling place of God. And the temple was later built on, a, on the hill, a mount referred to as Mount Zion, a hill in Jerusalem. But what does it mean to ascend the hill of the Lord? It has to do with those... Uh, who may be able to, to stand before God, to stand in his holy presence and be accepted by him? Who may enter into communion with God? Who may uh, come before him and, and have fellowship with him and offer worship uh, and be accepted? Well, before the fall, Adam and Eve were on that hill, if you will. Uh, they had a right relationship with God. They experienced communion with Him. But they sinned, and that relationship was broken, as we know, and, and they were no longer on the hill of the Lord, which at that time was the garden. Uh, all people, you see, now since um, Adam and Eve have fallen down that hill, we've been banished from that holy place. Uh, and, and this question of who may ascend the hill of the Lord... You know, it used to be a much greater concern uh, among people in general than it seems to be today. Uh, there was a time when it seems that at least uh, most people were interested in knowing what was required for them to uh, be right with God and to worship God and to, to enter into heaven one day. Uh, today, we're asking the wrong questions. How can I be happy? How can I be fulfilled? How can I be whoever I want to be? No one wants to think about what God requires. But you know, true happiness, true fulfillment comes 
only in a right relationship with the Lord. So the only question that matters in the end is how can I be in a right relationship with the Lord? How can I be saved? How can I have eternal life? Um, Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? The answer begins in verse 4. He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Now clean hands, of course, represent all our external actions. A pure heart uh, speaks of the uh, internal motives and desires within. And so, uh, in other words, we, if we would approach God and be accepted by him, uh, we must be clean on the inside and on the outside. And by the way, that is why we have time to, of confession of, for, of our sins in the worship service. We, we are seeking to ascend the hill of the Lord when we come into the service of worship. We're, we're thinking about our holy God and how we might approach him. We must have clean hands and a, and a pure heart. And so... We know that we don't when we confess our sins. But verse 4 continues. Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Who has not lifted up his soul to an idol, nor sworn deceitfully? So as, as the first statement uh, says, clean hands and a pure heart, it deals with the internal and the external uh, of our lives. And so this statement uh, deals with the first table of the law as well as the second. These are representative sins uh, or transgressions of the first and second tables of the law. And so uh, you should not lift up your soul to an idol. Well, uh, what does God say? The first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. The second commandment. You shall not make for yourself an idol or bow down to it. So idolatry... God will not tolerate, he's a jealous God, he will not tolerate uh, other gods before him. And idolatry can take many forms. Jesus said you cannot serve God and mammon. Money, things can be our God. Anything we put ahead of God or in the place of him as supreme, of supreme importance in our lives becomes an idol. Uh, Nature itself, the creation, uh, is a a glorious theater theater of God's beauty. Uh, We were able to take a hike on Monday up in the DuPont National Forest. We went on a trail. Uh, We found a trail, and it was beautiful. We'd never been set foot on this place before, Uh, but it was a beautiful part of his creation. Uh, But nature is not God. Uh, to worship nature, as some do. Some are out in nature today instead of being in church. Um, and I would say they've made their choice between creation and the Creator because God calls us on the Lord's Day to be together, to not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. Uh, to confuse God and His creation ultimately is the error of pantheism. Uh, some people say that uh, you know, God and His creation are one and the same. Um, but that's, uh, that's, that's a sinful approach. That's saying uh, what you know, God says, that, that he's the creator. He's not the creation. And they are distinct. To approach the hill of the Lord, we must not have sworn deceitfully. And that's a representative transgression of the second table of the law, the ninth commandment. 
Uh, you should not bear false witness against your neighbor. So the words that we speak are an indication of the condition of our heart. We just read in, in Revelation that all liars will be, uh, their place will be in the lake of fire. So our words matter. Uh, Jesus said, by your words, uh, you will be condemned. So we have to think about these things. The book of James tells us that no man can tame the tongue. It's an unruly evil. It's full of deadly poison. Uh, so we have a problem, don't we? A serious problem. Uh, essentially, the psalmist is saying to enter the presence of God, you have to keep the first and the second table of the Lord. You have your external deeds and your internal motives. Your heart must be perfect. Must be absolutely clean and pure. Proverbs 20 and verse 9 says, Who can say I have made my heart clean? I'm pure from my sin. None of us. Ecclesiastes 7.20 says, For there's not a just man on earth who does good and does not sin. We know that's true. Romans 3 verse 10, There's none righteous, no not one. We have unclean hands. We have an unclean heart. Isaiah added, I have unclean lips. We also could agree with that. We have a bad record and a bad heart. On the one hand, a bad record. We've done things and failed to do things that God's law says to do. We've broken His commandments. We've transgressed. We've broken His law. We've incurred guilt. And that guilt has to be punished because God is just. He's perfect. He's holy. He must punish sin. On the other hand, we have a bad heart. We are corrupt. We are wicked on the inside. The heart is, is, is desperately wicked. It's sick. It's even dead in trespasses and sins. We sin because we are sinful at heart, and so we have a problem. We have fallen down this hill and we cannot make it back up well I, I just would like to quote our dear old friend Robert Hawker no he's no longer living but still he's a friend isn't he if you've read any of his writings because he points us to Christ he, he's, he puts it this way he says where shall we look among all the fallen sons of Adam for one to answer this description all have sinned and come short of God's glory. But there is a man whose name is wonderful and who hath been found worthy as the representative of our poor nature, both to ascend and to dwell there. Even Jesus, the glory man, the God man, who when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty of on high. You know, the Bible says plainly, without holiness, no man, no woman, no one shall see the Lord. The Lord dwells in perfect holiness and purity. Not a single speck of sin can enter where He dwells. So there's no one who's ever lived on the earth except Jesus who by his own right and merit could enter that holy place, that holy hill. No one but Jesus ever had clean hands and a pure heart. He was without sin. 
the inside and the outside. He kept the first table of the law. He kept the second table of the law. He had a good heart, unlike the rest of us. He had a perfect record, unlike the rest of us. He alone is worthy to ascend the hill of the Lord. That's why I believe verse 5 is really speaking of Christ here. It says, He shall receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of His salvation. Christ earned the blessing of salvation and righteousness. He secured those blessings by the covenant of grace. And those blessings He gives also to those who believe. But Revelation 5 verse 9 says of Jesus, You're worthy to take the scroll to open its seals, for you were slain, you redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe, tongue, and people, and nation. So Christ alone being perfectly righteous uh, so that those who believe in him might have his righteousness imputed to them. And only in his righteousness can we ascend the hill. You see, only Jesus can ascend the hill, but he also um, includes those who by faith are united to him and are one with him. He takes us with him because we're in him. The blessings were secured not only for himself but as the head, but they're secured for those who are members of him, his body. He's the forerunner who's gone before us. He's entered into the heavenly Zion above. And when we trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and receive him, we too will receive blessing from the Lord, the righteousness of Christ and salvation. And so in Christ, the Bible even tells us uh, that we have already ascended with him and are seated with him in the heavenly realms. Ephesians chapter 2, 5 and 6. Even when we were dead in trespasses and sins, he uh, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places and here's the key phrase, in Christ Jesus. Are you in Christ? Then you are on that holy hill. You are seated in that heavenly place. Verse 6 <clears throat> begins to change gears a little bit, I would say, to not speak now of Christ, but of those who are seeking him. Uh, this is Jacob, the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face. Now, Jacob is another name for Israel, but it's interesting the psalmist uses Jacob here. Jacob was, his name was changed to Israel, but Jacob was a conniver. He was a deceiver. And yet Jacob and all who are of him are the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of God. And how did, how did, did Jacob ever begin to seek God? Because God changed him. And enabled him, just like he does for you and me, by grace to turn and to begin to seek the Lord. By nature, we know that there are none, there is none that seek God. But to his chosen ones, he gives a new heart, a new desire to seek him. Are you seeking the Lord? Is that what you're seeking in life? Is it God himself? Isaiah 55, 6 says... Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Well, when is, how can he, where can he be found? When is he near? Uh, I would say that 
he is found in his word as it is read, understood, preached, proclaimed, and received. He is near as we draw near to him, draw near to him, and he will draw near to you, especially in the service of worship where two or more gathered in his name. I am in their midst. Psalm 34, 18, the Lord is near to those who have a broken heart and saves such as have a contrite spirit. Is your heart broken over your sins and offenses against God? Do you have a con- are you really sorry? Are you contrite about your sins? Well, the Lord then for you is near. He's willing to be found. Um, he's near to all who call on him and call upon him in truth. That is in sincerity. So Jesus Christ is, is a prayer away. But that prayer must come with brokenness and contriteness and sorrow over sin. Whoever calls on the Lord will be saved. But we must call on him in truth and sincerity. And if you do, he will save you. He will bring you to his holy hill, and he will keep you there. That's the good news of the gospel. Final question the psalmist asks is in verses 7 to 10, and it's asked a couple of times. uh, Who is this king of glory? So let's review. The first two verses in this psalm describe God, the greatness of God, as sovereign creator and ruler of all things. The second... Section verses 3 through 6 speak of the holiness of God and what he requires. Uh, 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 He requires clean hands and a pure heart to come into his presence. And now this third section displays the majesty of the king as he is welcomed into eternal glory and of heaven itself. I think it's safe to say that today... In today's church, and certainly in our culture today, uh, we have neglected this idea. We've lost a sense of the majesty of God. Um, In 1977, a pastor in California named Jack Hayford and his wife decided to visit England, and it was the 21st, uh, I'm sorry, 25th anniversary of the. Uh, of Queen Elizabeth's uh, accession to the throne. And they were struck by the the grandeur of this celebration uh, and the joy of the people and their sovereign. And while they were there in England, they decided to uh, visit Blenheim Palace, uh, the birthplace of Winston Churchill. You probably know it um, as the place where Downton Abbey was filmed. But uh, this place inspired uh, Jack Hayford. And uh, David Mathis writes that driving away from the palace, overcome with awe, Hayford found himself reaching for words, language that would would transpose the weight of his earthly experience into the key of heaven. And as he thought, uh, the word that seemed most fitting to describe the magnificence of of the palace and and how it pointed to the superiority of Jesus was one word, majesty. And so he began to dictate to his wife the lyrics 
the key, the timing to a song, of course, that since has been sung um, by millions of Christians worldwide. So in these last four verses of Psalm 24, we see the majesty and glory of Jesus, King Jesus. The psalmist speaks to the gates as if they could respond to him. Lift up your heads, O you gates, and be lifted up, you everlasting doors. Make way for the king. And so the gates, when the gates are opened, the king of glory will come in, will enter. And then comes the question, who is this king of glory? And the answer uh, says, the Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. In verse 10, the Lord of hosts. And that, that phrase, Lord of hosts, uh, it means literally, the, it means Yahweh of armies. It means uh, the powerful, almighty God who is a warrior, who has all armies in heaven and on earth at his disposal because he's sovereign over all nations. And this description of this king of glory entering the sanctuary of God is ultimately a picture of the ascension of our Lord into heaven. You know, Christ descended from heaven in his incarnation. He came down to earth. And he died for the sins of his people. He was raised from the dead on the third day. Forty days later, he ascended into heaven, returning to heaven as the mightier, the mighty warrior, victorious king who conquered sin, hell, death, and the devil. So Christ entered heaven as the victor, as the conqueror over the forces of darkness. And so his ascension, we would say, we read about, or we sang about his triumphal entry uh, you know, all, all glory, laud, and honor was talking about the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. But this was his true triumphal entry as he came into heaven after his ascension. How do we apply this to our lives today? Well, of course, it's enough just to know that he is great, that he's majestic, that he's holy, that he's sovereign, and that... The earth is the Lord's and all things therein. That should be enough for us. But uh, think about this. Jesus Christ at his first coming tabernacled among men. John said the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. But you know, it was not enough that Jesus came in the flesh, was it? Now, Jesus died on the cross. He, he died as a substitute, as a sacrifice. He rose again, but that was not enough. He ascended and entered into the very gates of the heavenly sanctuary and sat down at the right hand of, of God. But that too is, is not enough. Each person, if he or she would ascend the hill of the Lord and enter into heaven, must open their heart to receive Christ as Lord. Uh, so you and I, have a heart and there's a door. There are gates, if, if you will, to the heart. And those who open their heart to Jesus Christ and all his victorious power uh, to give him right, to, to acknowledge his right to rule. He's always had that right. Uh, to receive him as Savior and Lord, conqueror and king, prophet, priest and king, you name it. To receive all of Jesus. 
And what will he do? He will save us, cleanse us. He'll cleanse our hearts. He'll give us pure hearts. He'll cleanse our hands. We'll have clean hands. And we can ascend into the very hill of the Lord. Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him. It's the same thing as saying, Be lifted up, O doors. Uh, you know, and the King of glory shall come in. Have you received Jesus Christ? Have you opened the door of your heart? Um, does he dwell in your heart by faith, as Ephesians says? You know, when Christ enters the heart, he takes over. Because he already has that right to rule. The earth is the Lord's and, and the world and those who dwell therein. That's you and me. When Christ enters the heart, he becomes master and ruler of all. Um, and when he comes in, he also strengthens your heart to make it a fortress. The Bible talks about the peace of God that guards our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So open your heart to Christ and he will come in. This king of glory who entered this, the sanctuary of God in heaven will enter the sanctuary of your own heart. And he will cleanse it and make it a holy place, a dwelling place. That Think of it. And one day he is coming back, of course, uh, and he will come in glory. He will sit upon the throne of his glory. He will judge the world. And the Scottish preacher Alexander McLaren put it this way. He said, Christ shall so come in like manner as he went up into heaven. Again will the summons ring out. Again will he come arrayed in flashing brightness in the visible robes of his imperial majesty. Again will he appear mighty in battle when in righteousness he shall judge and make war. So the king of glory has, has entered in in his ascension into the holy of holies, into the heaven of heavens. The king of glory has entered into the hearts of those who believe in him and receive him as Savior and Lord. But the king of glory is coming back. To gather you and me together, those who have been redeemed by his blood. And why has he done that? Why has he gone to all the trouble to redeem you and me and to, to gather us up, but to take us to be with him in glory forever? And, and why is that? So that for all eternity, we can sing his praises. Perhaps we'll sing that song, right, uh, that Jack Hayford wrote. We'll sing many songs. We'll sing new songs. Majesty, worship his majesty. Unto Jesus be all glory, honor, and praise. Amen.